Stanford University. You know, um, so there's a lot of scientists who I think you know 
are interested in music, period, there are a lot from my generation, or a little older than I, who are still suffering from Beatlemania. Um, and um, fortunately for our institute, Sir George Martin, who of course produced this album, is one of our founding board members. I didn't have to add one of the people that uh, Dr. Albers put in, the, you know, this is the classic cover, and, you know, there's Ingrid Bayer, there's our board chairman, Bob Freeman, many years was the director of the Eastman School. Um, David Hubel was a family board member, and David is actually an avid uh, flutist and pianist who said he wouldn't trade any success in science for the love of Bach instilled in him by his great school piano teacher. And of course, coming from a Nobel laureate, that actually says something. It's kind of typical of David to say something a little mischievous like that. Um, and again, really, it, it um, really wouldn't be possible, Ann Young, especially uh, my department chair at Mass General. So, but one thing I do am, am leaving this up for a little while is for the students, because part of the mission of the Institute, or a big part of the mission of the Institute, is education. So the students are certainly welcome to go to the education link. Jonathan, I don't know if you've invited them, but certainly there's the syllabus there for my Harvard course, which will become of course, taught out of the Albert School in the spring, because um, we're bringing the Institute over to LA. And we include in there uh, is an electronic library, the Institute's e-library, which is kind of the equivalent in, um, in, in the egghead world of Napster, because we have a ton of PDFs that are there on music and the brain, and they're there for everybody to read. And um, so please visit the educational activities page and go to the syllabus and go to the e-library. And there's a lot of material there. There's information about the society meetings and the various societies so that um, those of you who really are interested and you want to see the professional publications and the primary source documents in the field, I encourage you not to read the pop books that are out there because there's so much misinformation disseminated and the two bestsellers over the past few years. Go read the primary source material and, and see what the field is actually about. Now, in addition to all the things that neurobiologists can study, uh, there's something very special about studying uh, music uh, from the perspective of neuroscience, and that has to do with what's on the bottom of the list here. There are lots of different ways in neuroscience to study motor performance, auditory perception, and so forth. Many of them are very specific when we study music, okay? But really, it's only through studies of the arts and combining interdisciplinary studies of neuroscience and the arts that we can begin to get at these types of questions. There are no, and, and I'm someone who did his PhD work in old world monkeys, right? Because to do single unit, single neuron studies and sort of the equivalent of signal processing in the brains of um, humans or models for signal processing at the neural level, one really can't work in humans. It really requires working with animals. There's a caveat to that, a qualification that we can talk about later. We can actually do some of that work now in humans. But to get at questions of aesthetics, talent, creativity, um, and emotion, 
and collective behavior as it specifically relates to neuroethology in humans, because ethology, the behavior of animals in their natural environment is different for different animals, right? We can really only study those things in humans, and when we talk about these things, we can always study them in the arts. And that's really critical, that's a reason why it's critical to study the arts and combine that study with neuroscience to understand how the brain works. So I'm obviously not going to talk about all these things today, but I do want to make that point for why, from a neurobiological perspective, it's essential to study the arts. Now, there's a lot of interest in fascinomas in special types of humans who are musicians and have special talent and so forth. I have to say that from the fact that everything we know about music indicates that humans are universally competent with respect to music, especially from a perceptual perspective, as long as the society doesn't um, give disincentives for performance. So those of you who are ethnomusicologists can speak to the issues of universality for performance and the extent to which a society rewards performance and how much that impacts aptitude. But certainly from the perspective of perception and cognition, there's no question that no matter how hard you parents try to prevent your teens from spending as much time as they do downloading music from the web, they do it, right? And no matter how much time my mother tried to prevent me from writing rock and roll songs, she still couldn't overcome the reinforcement my father gave me and my insistence that I was gonna spend that many hours a day doing it, okay? And that aspect of human behavior, it's irrefutable that all cultures that ever existed, all members of that culture, can do it, can apprehend emotion and meaning of music. It's not about literacy. It's not about how good you are. It's about being able to be part of a group and participate now, it doesn't matter what subculture, but it's being able to participate as a member of some subgroup or subculture and perceive music. You get it. And you need a brain and a couple of ears. You only need one ear. Brian Wilson, by the way, of the Beach Boys, because his father, Vito, had only one ear working when he did Pet Sounds. Okay, you need one ear and at least part of a brain to do it. This is a picture of a woman in Kabul uh, taken a couple of weeks. It's a time-life picture of the year when we first went into Afghanistan. For the first time in 13 years, women were actually allowed to dance and listen to music. So this is a picture of her at a wedding with the joy of music written all over her face and body after being depressed <laughs> for all that time. Now, why is this? Leonard Bernstein argued in his Norton lectures at Harvard in the early 70s that he called um, the preordained universal was the harmonic series. I'm not going to belabor this point. All resonating bodies, basic physics, 
all bodies that have, all, all objects that have the basic physical principle of resonance, when struck with an object, will produce a harmonic series. A harmonic series is simply having some frequency, that's the fundamental, fundamental frequency, and frequencies that are integer multiples of that frequency, right? So if you hit some resonating object, as we're working, my voice, right? Ah, those vocal cords are vibrating, so they're vibrating at some fundamental frequency, but then on top of that, there's all of these other frequencies that are integer multiples of the fundamental frequency of 65, right? So, what's amazing is that the first six harmonics of any harmonic series, forget about what the actual value is here, it doesn't matter. It could be 65, it could be 65.07231, it could be 72, it doesn't matter. What matters is that it's 65, 2 times 65, 3 times 65, 4 times 65, that's a harmonic series. The first six harmonics of any harmonic series comprise the chord known as the major triad, which is the basis of tonal harmony in Western music. It's a basic physical principle. So if this keyboard were working, and we have a little camera here on my hand, what Jerry Lee Lewis plays all the time and is banging away on those, that chord, each of those is those notes, those frequencies. Now they're the fun, you know, there are qualifications and there's all this terminology that I have to introduce, but the bottom line is, that those first harmonics are actually the major triad chord. So, you know, every Chuck Berry song, every chord are major triad chords. Okay? Like when the monks were singing, they only sang those notes. You could not sing the other notes. So there's something about the physics of it. And you can look at songs like The Star Spangled Banner, and you know, every note in the first few notes here come from the harmonic series. Now to go from the representation, the physical representation, to the physical biological representation in the ear, so that's where the term physiology comes from, it just means physical biology. There's a physical representation in a biological system. The trick that is done anatomically and physiologically is the same trick that was done in and around the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to create the equal temporal scale, which is to turn a linear system where equal distances are equal frequencies into a logarithmic system where equal spatial distances are equal logarithmic distances. That's what the scale of equal temperament is, right? So octaves are at equal distances, not harmonics. 
That was the trick of the equal temperate scale. So from C to C to C to C is equal. So that's a base two system, which is a logarithmic system. Here, it's not a base two system, it's a multiplication by two system. That's a linear system. So if you multiply by two, right, it's equal distances. So you're going from a linear system to a logarithmic system. That's all in the relationship of frequency to spatial distance. It's all physical. But when you get to the biological system, which is in your inner ear, it's the same as the piano keyboard. Equal distances in the ear and the response of the ear to different frequencies are based on the logarithmic frequencies, not the linear frequencies. There are lots of qualifications <coughs> that I'm skipping to make the point that biologically most systems like the natural log system are logarithmic systems, they're not linear systems. So one aspect, when I mentioned this talk, you know, neurobiological foundations for the theory of harmony, right off the bat there are two of them. One is uh, the way that our ears are built, we can only hear frequencies between the waves that vibrate somewhere between 20 times per second and 10,000 times per second. Anything that's more than 10,000 or less than 20, we can't hear. So don't bother making an instrument, digitally or otherwise, that vibrates with sounds below 20 or above 10,000. All right? So that, that's right there a biological constraint. It's not even neurobiological. It's just biological. Right? You're not a dolphin. You're not a bat. Right? and you're, you're not a slug. So forget about it. So that's a biological constraint right there on the theory of harmony. It's trivial, but it is a biological constraint. The second biological constraint is that the anatomical mapping of, of vibration frequencies is related to logarithmic distances of those frequencies, not linear distances. And as a result of that, equal distances means octaves. So octaves have something in common in terms of anatomical distances, which again now should raise an eyebrow or two. Because you know, regardless of how extensive that any kind of musical training, that there's something about octaves and perceptual similarity. Right? So now we have acoustical similarities between octaves. There are anatomical and physiological similarities related to distances. And there are perceptual similarities. 
And as far as we know, unless Ingrid throws a penalty marker, or one of the ethnomusicologists I've yet to meet throws a penalty marker, octave equivalence is another universal. Across all cultures, there appears to be the case that all cultures chunk musical scales into octaves. There's some degree of octave equivalence. Okay, so now we're now we're at three biologic what appear to be it's hard to prove these things but three universals that would appear to have both acoustic and biological parts. All right, and so you know I'm on this campaign. I'm not sure why I'm going off the screen if any of the technicians can help me with that. Um, now again, as, as you've heard me say, this idea that you have to take lessons, who, who thinks they're, they're quote-unquote tone deaf in the audience? First of all, how many of you in the audience have taken lessons? Okay. So now, how many of you who haven't taken lessons like, you probably are thinking, oh, no, I didn't take the lesson right. You actually, if you look on this slide, you see the pictures of those people there on the left? They never took lessons. <laughs> okay. All right, they never took a lesson. So I went to Irving Berlin's 100th birthday party. It's one of those things you get to do when you're in ASCII. Of course, he didn't go. But when Shirley McLean told his story, um, when um, Shirley McLean told his story, um, Irving Berlin, right, is he like the most prolific or one of the most prolific songwriters in the 20th century, American songwriter of the 20th century, right? He can only play an F sharp. And so they bought him a crank. So the singer needed to sing in a different key. They like changed the tuning of the piano, but he still played an F sharp. Because your F sharp's kind of easy to play in because you got the five black keys and then you only play two white ones. So I guess he wrote everything in the major mode. I don't know for sure about that. And he played everything in F-sharp. Does anybody think that he wasn't a good musician? So it's not about literacy. Okay. Lennon never, John Lennon never took a lesson. His mother taught him how to play the ukulele. At, you know, before she dumped him off on Aunt Mimi, even though she was living two blocks away. McCartney's mother died, and his father bought him a guitar. It's not about getting drilled with lessons, right? So we looked at the question of here on your top left is a harmonic series. And what we did was we slightly mistuned one of the harmonics. For those of you who you know, you're going to know it's, it's the just scale, and it's the fifth. 
And we made it so that if, you, if those of you who know psychophysical methods, we use a two-in-two-hole-two -two 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 alternative force choice method with an adaptive procedure titrated to a response accuracy of 71% to find what the difference threshold was for various listeners with different musical backgrounds. Okay. And so this at the bottom shows what the Weber fraction, which is the frequency difference divided by the center frequency. Right, so it takes into account what, where you are in the register as a function of musicality. I did this with my colleague, Luke Breda, who's the director of the Speech and Hearing Science Program at MIT and the head of the Research Laboratory of Electronics, Warehouse, Mangolstein, George Miller, and a lot of folks. Actually, one of the early labs that did psychoacoustics of music research, which is a post-World War II phenomenon, because they did a lot of um, Doppler and field, you know, while, bomb, while tanks are firing, field communications like a so, if you look at this, this tells you, this is like all, the lower the number on the y-axis, the better you are. Okay. So very quickly, which ones are the musicians, the pink or the black? You took too long. So that means you can't tell. Right. So these are the really active, highly practiced musicians. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't really tell. This is also a musician. So this fundamental task of saying whether this harmonic is right on or a little off, right, which is the equivalent, like, you know, everyone works so hard to get these instruments together, but this is sort of par for the course. You know, I was handed this guitar, right, and yeah, I'm sorry, but it's not like perfect when you're tuned. So if I, if I said, how's that sound? Right, everybody's in credit, right? Are you tuned? No, you all know that. So some of the most elementary, fun, yet fundamental, you could, I was at the Grammys last week. Imagine if you went there. And, you know, it could be anybody, right? They wheeled out Sir Elton on the piano. Imagine the piano's attitude. It's not awful. So, um, you can do that. It doesn't matter, right? That's a very fundamental aspect. Admittedly, it's not high level. It's not really cognitive. But it is perceptual, and it really is important. In fact, you would judge musicians based on this sort of a thing and say they're amateurish, you know, and they're just not very good at it. They have really good tuners, these guys. <laughs> they don't even have to think about it, right? So, um, you know, one thing that is interesting from a neurobiological perspective, and it's a weak correlation, so this is years since musical training. And this is a music activities index. We're trying to work on this musicality index and trying to think about, you know, how important is it? You know, how many years do you train? When did you last have training? How active are you right now? And remember, the lower you are, the better, like golf. So the longer it's been since training, kind of the worse you are in general. Not a tight correlation, but, you know, somewhat of a correlation. And how much are you actively playing, right? If you're really not playing a whole lot, 
you tend to be up in here, and if you're playing a lot, you're down here. So in neuroscience, and now we're talking about things like gene induction, single unit physiology, you know, rats and mice, people who are actually interested in this sort of thing. There's this whole kind of people talk about use it or lose it. And that in order to maintain synaptic connections, uh, you know, so you could have played, you know, your mother could have whipped you into Suzuki lessons for five years when you were a child to make sure you got into that good, you know, grade school. But if you didn't keep playing, by the time you're 21 years old, you're no better than the kid who never had a lesson in his life. All right. Um, and that's the concept of use it or lose it. Any of those synaptic connections that were formed during that early stage are going to be lost. So this is all just psychological studies, right? We're not looking at the brain yet. And this falls into the realm of cognitive psychology or psychophysics. Um, really, it's not cognitive neuroscience. This is cognitive science, right? To do cognitive neuroscience, you really have to look at the brain itself. So, um, you know, beware people who say they're doing, you know, like Steve Pinker likes to pose with the brain. He's actually never seen a brain. Okay. So, to do cognitive neuroscience, you have to work with the brain. You can make inferences about the brain when you're in cognitive science. But to do cognitive neuroscience, you actually have to work with the brain. So, um, for the most part, during my time, I've been focused on this part of the brain known as the auditory cortex, which is kind of the highest station where sound goes into your ear, right? But then after that, there's no more sound. All that sound gets transduced or coded into electrical activity. It really is like, sounds like uh, sparks going off. There's no more sound after that. And it gets relayed through, it's like a train, it's like uh, train tracks, you know, station number one, station number two, station number three. And, you know, about the fifth station, the last station is the auditory cortex. The difference between that and train tracks are that the information actually gets processed and elaborated on each station along the way. So there's, there's some sort of processing that it gets more and more refined, if you want to think of it that way, at each station. And we know from neurology going back to the 19th century that you can have damage, for example, how many of you were right-handed? How many in the audience are right-handed? So if you have damage to your left auditory cortex, let's say you have a stroke there or a tumor there, you don't, you don't become deaf. You can hear just fine, but you can't understand speech. And that's, that's how I got really interested in music and the brain, which since I was playing music and I learned this is, you know, basic neurology, how could it be that you can hear, but you can't perceive speech? Like, that's, that's pretty wild. And then it was kind of the next question, was pretty obvious. So what happens then with music? It's just that a lot of people weren't doing it. They weren't musicians or they weren't interested or what have you. There were some people, but there wasn't that question of, oh, well, 
How do they do with pitch perception? How do they do with harmony perception? How do they do with melody? What about rhythm? What about timbre? There's like all this stuff suddenly pours out and you go to look for it and there's not a whole lot there. But speech, because it has to do with language and communication, it's sort of like basic neurology board exam question, right? So I got interested in this question and then published this model of this is what different areas of the brain might be doing where this auditory cortex region where all those neurons are devoted to the analysis and representation of only sound. So with music that would be tuning and melody and harmony and so forth. Probably things related to equivalence and transposition, for example, which is an amazingly complex auditory computation that we take for granted and children do effortlessly, but old world monkeys can't do. They're too concrete for that. To this idea of expectancy generation where you're bringing the future into the present, you know, knowing where things are going and anticipating them, and that's actually influencing what you perceive in the present. So a lot of what um, yeah, I've been involved with is, has been in this realm, and then manipulating expectancies to generate emotions is obviously in songwriting and composition, um, if I'm correct, Professor Berger, um, a lot of what a composer um, plays with in composition. And you know, this is the whole thing. Jonathan knows I'm a pop songwriter, and he's, you know, a composer extraordinaire. But the bottom line is, if you write music, this is the holy grail. I mean, that's what you do it for. For the audience as well, I think, is for yourself. Without that, there's nothing else. So in the in the world of neuroscience and perception, and whether it's the arts or other aspects. What we try to do is we have these physical representations of music. We saw that example with the harmonic series, right? We have these mental representations, like whether something sounds in tune or out of tune. And then we have neural representations. We can look at patients where there may be some lesion in the brain that affects the mental representation. We can look at how metabolism changes. That's what fMRI and PET are looking at. We can look at how electrical activity changes in the brain. I think probably Dr. Um, Janata and perhaps Dr. Patel spoke a little bit about this. Um, we can look at how big different parts of the brain are and what their synaptic connections are like and how they're put together. There's actually something called cytoarchitecture borrowed, of course, from architecture, where it's how the cells are lined up and how big they are, and you look in a microscope and really describe like you would in archaeology, the little components of the brain and how the cells are put together. And then the Morse code, this firing of action potentials that I mentioned to you, because there is no sound in the brain. It's all converted. In the auditory cortex, you have 10, this is how it works. You have 30,000 cells in this ear. You have 30,000 cells in this ear. They fire a spark every time I'm talking to you. Oh, about 200 spark, each of them. About, say, 100 to 200 times 
per second on average. Not all of them, though. Only the ones that are sensitive to the frequencies of sound, remember they're tuned to those frequencies um, based on the logarithmic scale. The ones that my voice overlaps their tuning, they'll fire anywhere from 100 to 200 times per second. Then by the time they get up to that last station in the auditory cortex, there are 10 million on this side and 10 million on this side. They don't fire as fast. They may only fire 100 times per second, but there are more of them. Right? And again, they'll only fire if the frequencies of, that are contained in my voice overlap the frequency range that they're sensitive to. That's a lot of information processing going on right now as I'm speaking to you, right? But it's only if you're interested and these other areas of the brain are stimulating the auditory cortex that you'll actually take in that information, otherwise you're going to doze off. Right. The auditory cortex has to be aroused by your brain stem that has nothing to do with sound, but tells you whether that information coming in is salient, is interesting, or not. It's a completely separate system. All right? So, all right, let's look at a couple of cases. How are we doing with time? Am I red folder or yellow folder? Oh, okay. Okay, not so bad. All right. All right, so I got an email from Pennsylvania. Someone found us through the internet. A choir master, 51 years old, having trouble leading his choir. He really couldn't tell whether they were doing well or not. And about Six months or so previously, he had a stroke in his right hemisphere. And this is a three-dimensional, I'm sorry, the red isn't coming out as well as I hoped. This is his right hemisphere here. And the white is where he's had his stroke. And if we go back to this, right, so all of this is spared. But this part, including the posterior part of the auditory cortex, has had the stroke. Right? And these, this area here is called multimodal, meaning the neurons there respond to light as well as sound, as well as touch, and they put together what you hear with what you see with what you feel. So when you play an instrument, this is why music is such a powerful, I think, therapeutic tool. When you put it all together, you need those multimodal neurons because you're moving and you're feeling and you have the spatial coordinates and you're listening. And so you need those multi, in, in the real world, everything's multimodal, it's integrated. So um, he had a right hemisphere infarct involving all of the transverse gyro. We don't need to get into these boring details and the neighboring multimodal areas, and now you're familiar with this task. So you hear two tones, you know, um, like one chord and then another chord. Which chord was in tune, the first one or the second one? And we find out how far apart, 
how much out of tune it needs to be for him to get it right. And that's in percentage. The lower the percent, the better he is. The farther apart he needs it to be out of tune, the worse he is. So the normals, they only need the mistuning to be 2%. But if this part of the auditory cortex is damaged, even though he's highly trained and the controls weren't, he needed it to be 7%. So as I talked about in Professor Berger's class today, this is um, a no-one case establishes any kind of a, a proof other than an existence proof. We didn't talk about existence proofs today. So this is an existence proof that argues that the right hemisphere's auditory cortex is necessary to perceive harmony in the vertical dimension. Right? There's no context here, so this is purely harmony in the vertical dimension. Right? In order to establish a more general proof or a prevalence argument, to support a prevalence argument, you have to do a population study or collect a larger number of cases. But this is a step towards that in, in establishing an existence proof. That damage to the right auditory cortex impairs harmony perception in the vertical dimension, specifically in this case for a major triad with a mistuned fit in the just scale. All right, any questions about this? This method is known as the lesion effect method, and it's the only method. You can't with functional imaging, you cannot with PET, you cannot with event-related potentials test whether any part of the brain is necessary for a particular function. Only the lesion effect method is capable of testing that hypothesis. Okay, let's look at another way of doing this. Um, let's look at this case. 21-year-old machinist, very, it's a sad case, but a great, great story, actually. 21-year-old machinist suddenly became unable to hear a year earlier, he was uh, he was at work, and suddenly his left arm started shaking, and his whole body started convulsing. He blacked out. When he awoke, his arm and leg were paralyzed. Uh, his exam suggested that there was damage to the right hemisphere. The CT of his brain confirmed that. He never recovered strength on his left side. A year later, this this second time. The only thing that was wrong with him was he couldn't hear. There was no other sort of more objective signs. Uh, and he had a brain CT and there was no new abnormality. So the ER doctor said, you're nuts. You're just freaking out because you know, you're depressed, you have a stroke, and you're 21. But actually, a CT scan um, doesn't show a stroke the day of the stroke, especially if it's, it takes a week, depending on the size, maybe a few days, but CT doesn't show the stroke, you have to see it on exam. So fortunately he was seen by a behavioral neurologist, this, this happened in, at Brown in Rhode Island, and unbelievably the neurologist who saw him, the behavioral neurologist is my partner now at UCLA, so it's totally bizarre. 
So you see my behavioral neurologist and an audiologist, and that led to the correct diagnosis of cortical deafness, which is a term that was coined in 1883 by Carl Wernicke and his colleague Friedlander, um, which is always transient, but Wernicke got that wrong. Um, so here's a scan that we did years later when he came to us. So you see the right hemisphere stroke. So the reason that this is reversed, and people, people don't see patients, that, it's like you're meeting the patient and shaking their hand. So you're going up to the bedside or you're saying hello. So of course the patient's facing you. Okay, so you're looking at, it's like if the brain is a loaf of bread, you look at one slice at a time of the loaf of bread. Right. So this is the front and this is the back. Patient saying hello to you. So that means this is the right and this is the left. So this is that first stroke, which is huge. But the second one, he was really unlucky. A little clot went up from his heart. And it got right in this area where the ear nerves go first. Okay, so now he has no primary auditory cortex at all. So this resolves always. Wernicke's first patient had syphilis and died in two weeks, so he didn't realize it. But it always gets better, but what you have trouble with is you can hear, but you don't know what's said or what you're hearing and where it's coming from. And you do in some respects, but it's really a profound deficit, and it involves all sorts of sounds speech sounds, environmental sounds, musical sounds, and the question is, you know, how bad is it in the music domain, how bad is it in the speech domain, how bad is it, what types of so-called dissociations does one get, how much does it depend on intensity, how much does it de depend on the tempo of individual sound events, how much can you make use of what's left behind in order to incorporate it into speech therapy, there's a lot of interesting questions, of course, I was interested in harmony. And um, we, um, I collaborated with John Shibberuja, who was my colleague at the time of Dartmouth. He's not provost of Tufts. Um, and of course, he also was a musician, so a terrific violinist. We did a somewhat different task using a method of constant stimuli that he had used in a priming paradigm, but I wanted not to use priming. And um, what uh, we did was just present a single chord and simply ask him, does it sound in tune or out of tune? And here's a flat map. We were developing a technique with Mike Gazaniga and Mark Jandet at the time called, uh, I might like to call brain printing. So you can see the, uh, by the way, you know, you hear, you hear these terms like superior temporal gyrus and um, there are these folds in the brain called gyri. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we did this in class today. You know the Greek sandwich? That's what it is. It's, it's one of those sandwiches. <laughs> Each one is a hero. Okay, that's what, so it's the superior temporal hero, the middle temporal hero. And in between them, the spaces are called salsa. It's just all Greek. And because they're folds, they look like the sandwich. All right, superior means top, temple is the temple low, and the temple. And 
vision wrong is because that's when it's when we say gyrus. It's English. We learn everything in English. So if you look at the pattern of these sandwiches, it's like your fingerprint. Everybody has a different pattern. Right? Of how they do their their layout. So here's the big stroke. This is the front, this is the back. Right? You unfold it, you know, like the globe, like when you took the globe off and you flatten it, same kind of idea with the brain. So you can see, you don't have to look at 18 different scans, you can see it all in one picture. So here's the right hemisphere, you see here's the little left one, and this gyrus is the auditory cortex region. So you can see he got it right here, right? So here's his performance. So there's two possibilities, in tune or out of tune. So chance is 50%, right? So he's at chance, and the controls are well above chance at 80%, right? So that's what we reported in the paper. But then we did an error analysis. You know, Freudian errors came out of aphasic error analyses, by the way. He wrote a book called Not Aphasia. He was a neurologist. And he got interested in Freudian errors because of the types of errors in physics make when they speak. That's where he developed his Freudian error theory for slips of the tongue, but it comes from aphasia studies. So afterwards, I said, well, why don't we look at the errors? What kind of errors did he make? So here he is. This is when the chords were in tune. And these are the, this is when the chords were out of tune. So what do you see? This is known as a response bias. Right? You basically heard almost all of the chords is out of tune. So this bilateral auditory cortex lesions caused a deficit in consonance perception, which is going to get us to our next little piece, which is my irritation with this notion that consonance is a negative percept, which has been skewing out of Europe now for 150 years. Right? It's the absence of roughness. It's not the absence of roughness. It's an active process that involves integrative mechanisms that involve the cortex. It has nothing to do with the ear. Okay, so this is a, basically a, a neuroanatomical proof the consonance is, in fact, a positive phenomenon that requires integrative processing and the integrity of the auditory cortex, and in particular, the primary auditory cortex. And that the deficit, where his chance performance was due not to an equal problem with consonance and dissonance perception, but to a deficit of consonance perception. <coughs> All right, any questions about this experiment? And we looked at the same kind of task with split brain patients with my cognitive neuroscience mentor, Mike Zanica. So here's the corpus callosum in identical twins. We did a study showing that there's a big genetic component on the size and shape of the callosum. <coughs> to control epilepsy, Joe Logan in Pasadena when Mike was a grad student at Caltech working with Roger Sperry, he wears Waldo. No colossum. So the 
to prevent the spread of seizures from one hemisphere to the other, which is when they become life-threatening, Dr. Bowling went in and cut the callosum. So instead of having one brain or one, one connected or two connected hemispheres, one brain, you had two half brains. With very little actual consequences in day-to-day -day life. <coughs> you might not want to be a passenger in the car, but and uh, piano playing might be a problem, but beats having generalized convulsions every day. So what you can do is a trick. If you have the patient stare at this dot and flash a picture for 150 milliseconds, because of the way the visual system is organized, the picture will only get to that hemisphere. And when you see that picture, even if you were to move your eyes, which we don't allow in the lab, it takes 150 milliseconds from the time you perceive the pictures to your eyes to even start moving. That's the latency, so-called latency for saccadic eye movements. So this is called picostoscopic presentation of the visual target. And then in you and I, the information would cross over the callosum right about there, but in the split brain patient, it can't. So if you flash the word out here and ask the right hemisphere to read it, the right hemisphere can't talk. So the, the left hemisphere would say, I don't know. But if you flashed it here to the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere would say out. And that's the classic split brain paradigm of Pizanica and Sperry. So we play the chord, and we flash notice we have both non-verbal and verbal cues, and said point, and we practice them. Listen and point, is it in tune or out of tune? So left visual field is right hemisphere, right? So the right hemisphere was above chance when it was in tune. But the left hemisphere was at or below chance for this patient and above chance for that patient. So it looks like the left hemisphere, at least for one of the patients, has trouble with consonance perception. The right hemisphere for both patients is good. The right hemisphere for both patients was above chance for dissonant chords, and it was at or this one is kind of sort of at chance if you look at the statistics, and this is above chance for dissonant chords. All right. So I think the summary statement for this is the right hemisphere has no trouble with consonance perception, and the right hemisphere has no trouble for dissonance perception. The left hemisphere is variable depending on the individual. So now we saw with the Flyer master, a lesion of the right hemisphere impaired harmony perception in the vertical dimension. Here, the intact right hemisphere is doing well with vertical harmony perception, whether it's consonant or dissonant. And we have our other case where if you don't have an auditory cortex, you cannot hear consonants. Right. So all the pointing to the auditory cortex playing a very important role in general for harmony perception in the vertical dimension and the right hemisphere playing a very important role for 
consonance perception in the vertical dimension. All right. So the last little bit I want to go over. How many of you have any kind of a background in signal processing? Okay, so um, this is going to be for those of you who do know some signal processing. And I apologize to those of you who don't, because there's not going to be any way to compromise. Um, and I'm happy to stay afterwards and deconvolve. How many of you are going to be in Professor Berger's undergraduate class tomorrow if we're here? Okay, so we'll get a chance to talk about that a little tomorrow. So historically, um, you know, the first experiment ever to combine mathematics and psychology had to do with pitching consonants, supposedly. It was done by the religious cult in Sicily, led by Pythagoras. My colleagues at the INEAR and MIT think some of my is up like Sicilian. I bet some of my family was there since I've been doing so much this lately. And you know, when Galileo was under house arrest, for working on astronomy, he worked on consonants. It's in dialogues on two new sciences. And of course, Helmholtz, as great a Hall of Famer as he was, um, made the argument that the nature of dissonance is simply based on very fast speeds that are rough and annoying to the auditory nerve, and that consonants is a continuous dissonance, an intermittent tone sensation, and the idea that consonance is simply the absence of beats and roughness, not a positive percept, um, goes back to Helmholtz. How many of you want to know what beats and roughness is? So um, it's the equivalent of sandpaper. So roughness is So when two frequencies are very close together, and they sum, the amplitude fluctuations are slow enough that they don't fuse. And you actually can hear the roughness the way, you know, like if you have sandpaper, if the, if the, the pieces are very, very close together, you, you feel it is smooth. But if, if those, you know, the gravel, if you want to call it that, are very far apart, it feels rough. It's the same thing in the auditory system, same idea. Okay. okay, so with uh, Bertrand Delgu and Peter Cariani, we put electrodes into the auditory nerve of an anesthetized cat. So we're in the axon of an individual axon of cats. This projects to the brainstem. So, you know, here's a cartoon to give you a sense of where we are, right? So there's the auditory cortex. So here's the multiple stations. So this is the obligatory relay. That's one of the 30,000 axons that go from your ear to the brain. Here's an action potential, what I call the spark. So the idea is you play a sound. That sound gets encoded into these sparks. Notice how many sparks happen in one second. And we want to count how many happen in a second, and we want to measure the time between them. The number of spikes per second, that's the rate, and the time separation between them, that's the interspike interval. 
This is one neuron, and I told you that there's a frequency tuning. So this neuron up here, it will only respond to sound if the sound has frequencies falling in this gray area and intensities falling in this gray area. So in other words, you have to have a frequency between here and here combined with an intensity from here to here as defined by the gray area. So that frequency intensity combination, that's known as the receptive field of the neuron. So the blue and yellow are, is the stimulus, and it's a minor second. Okay? So when all of these are present, it's a complex minor second. When only two are present, it's a pure minor second. Okay? And here it is. This is the acoustic waveform of a pure tone minor second. This is the response of a single auditory neuron, averaged 100 times. So what do you see? You see this is the envelope of the stimulus. Notice that the neuron responds with an envelope that corresponds to the beat frequency, and that those envelope periodicities underneath the envelope are local <coughs> periodicities, that correspond to the local periodicities of the stimulus. So the neuron is firing here, and the envelope periodicities are encoding the roughness. The fine periodicities are encoding the pitch. And it doesn't matter whether the neuron is tuned to 350 hertz, or whether the neuron is tuned to about 1100 kilohertz. It's going to respond the same to the pure tone minor second because only those two frequencies are present. However, when it's a complex tone minor second and all eight frequencies are present, see now all eight of these are present, this neuron is still going to be dominated by these two frequencies because they're close to its characteristic frequency. But now this neuron is going to be dominated by these two frequencies, which are closest to its characteristic frequency. So now the response of this neuron is the same. But here, the envelope periodicities right, reflect these frequencies, and the local periodicities, their mean. Notice that for the pure tone perfect fifth, there are no periodicities in the roughness range. So we need a computational model to look at all of these combined. So this is as if you've unfolded the cochlea. Here's a complex minor second frequency here. This is a neurogram. It's as if you're looking at populations of auditory nerve fibers with tuned to these frequencies and averaged around those frequencies. This is showing on the y-axis their spike rate 
on the x-axis time. So you can see the envelope periodicities in the spike rate. And you can see that the periodicities depend on their characteristic frequencies. Right? And then we bandpass filtered them using a model of midbrain neurons. Since the output of the auditory nerve must go through midbrain neurons, and those midbrain neurons have transfer functions characterized by these types of temporal modulation filters. So we pass them through these bandpass filters, and this is the output of the filters to the root mean squared, weighted them according to the human distribution of um, characteristic frequencies to correct for the cat. Sum them to get a measure of total roughness. And then correlated <coughs> the neural measures we got from here for each of the minor second, fourth, tritone, and fifth, pure tone configuration, complex tone configuration, with the perceptual measures done by Poppin, Lavelle, and Kamioka, and Kuriagawa in the 60s. And this correlation separately for the pure tones and complex tones, since there's actually no one who did this this summer, no one who's done complex tones and pure tones together is 0.99. So the neural correlate for roughness correlates at 0.99 with perceptual correlate. We also developed a correlate for the Boss fundamental. This is the interspike interval distribution. To get away from quantitation, if you just looked at this, everybody, as a pattern, forget the numbers, and you look at the patterns, just look at it like wallpaper. Patterns on the left, patterns on the right. Which are more regular, the patterns on the left or the patterns on the right? On the right. All right, this is the Galileo hypothesis. Right. What Galileo said was, agreeable consonances or pairs of tones which strike the ear with a certain regularity in the same interval of time, commensurable in number, so as not to keep the eardrum in perpetual torment, as if the eardrum's a person, bending in two different directions in order to yield to the ever discordant impulses. So you see the axes here. This is time, right? So this is more regular. This is less. This is the fourth and fifth. This is the second and the tritone. So again, a computational model that we can go through in pairwise if any of you are interested in signal processing. Any of you familiar with Julius Goldstein and the harmonic sieve concept? This is a harmonic sieve, but not done in the spectral domain, done in the time domain as a periodicity template. So the interspike interval distribution, the all-order interspike interval distribution, is passed through a periodic template. And then the peak in the output of the periodic template is taken as Ramos fundamental base, an index of Ramos fundamental base, and correlated with the perceptual correlates. 
there's a correlation of about 0.99 for the complex tones, and the correlation is lower for the pure tones, mostly because of a disagreement with the data for the tritone, which we can talk about because I think of the way the psychophysics were originally done by the Dutch and Japanese, which is why we think of I'm not being a recalcitrant musician about the way they dealt with the tritone, but we can talk about that in the video. So, the conclusions, one, the auditory cortex plays a critical role in the perception of harmony in the vertical dimension, particularly with respect to fine-grained discrimination of frequency relationships among individual partials. And I would add to that first one that everything, and by the way, the statement that the right hemisphere is the musical hemisphere, you can forget about that. That's an absurd statement. However, when it is an isolated chord or interval or pitch, and you ask the brain to do a fine-grained discrimination like these very reductionistic tasks I just showed you with brain-damaged patients, it does look like the right auditory cortex does play an essential role in those kinds of functions pertaining to pitch and harmony perception. Right? We're not talking about melody. We're not talking about rhythm. We're talking about isolated chords and fine-grained discriminations pertaining to harmony in the vertical dimension. It's very important that we make clear what aspects of music perception we're talking about. Two, when we hear consonant intervals, the fine timing of the discharges can get information about virtual pitches. Virtual pitches means there's actually no frequency in the stimulus carrying that pitch information. Your brain is reconstructing the information based on timing information and the signal. All right? So you have that information in the brain based on the timing information that's present. And uh, your brain is computing Ramo's fundamental base from that timing information. We have no idea how the cortex does this because it's not clear that it can handle that kind of timing information. It, it may be actually the midbrain that's doing it. Um, when we do hear dissonant intervals, um, the idea that it's actually the ear that's generating the dissonance doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the ability of the ear to resolve those frequencies is limited. So it may very well be that it's the brain again that's doing it through timing information. And it's those envelope periodicities that are slow that's giving that kind of information to the brain. Um, and finally, that this notion that consonance is a negative percept really is untenable. That in order to perceive harmony, it's clear that we need the auditory cortex from the lesion experiments that I showed you and lesion experiments that others have done elsewhere, A, and B, it's clear that we really do have neurophysiological correlates of consonants, at least in the auditory nerve. So we do have evidence that there are correlates of roughness as well, so it appears that there are dual temporal codes for both consonants and dissonance, 
and that we have to recognize that consonance is a positive perceptual phenomenon. And um, I apologize for going a bit over, more than a bit over, and um, I do want to encourage everyone who has questions to come on up and ask them. Uh, again, I apologize for going so quickly on that last section. And I do want to thank, let me get through this. We had an unbelievable, we had 14 students in the lab this summer, and I do want to thank all of them um, for coming from all over the country to spend um, eight to 10 weeks at the Institute. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.